What if you were born with a disease that you always knew would kill you? And then what if all of a sudden you were given a second chance? Well, that's exactly what happened to me. And it's the question that we explore on the new podcast series, Breathless from Snack Labs. Join me, Jeremy Saunders, for a series that explores what it means to live and die, to love and to lose, and what it's like to have your whole life turned upside down and the unexpected challenges that come with a life-saving drug. You can listen to Breathless now, wherever you get your podcasts. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, folks. Uh, this week on Turn Me On, Bridie and I, holy smokes, we had an amazing conversation with uh, a past guest that we had on the show. You might remember Lisa Hendrickson Jack. Uh, and we talked all about the new book that she co authored with Lily Nichols. Uh, it's called Real Food for Fertility, which basically focuses on the role of nutrition in fertility and preparing for pregnancy. Um, and by the way, this conversation was so fucking awesome that I booked Lisa and Lily to come on Sick Boy so that we could discuss the contents of the book. Um, and that episode is dropping right now as you're listening to this. So if you want to listen to this conversation um, uh, twice, uh, one with Brody and I and then one with three dudes who are just uh, completely fascinated with all things pregnancy, then head on over to Sick Boy and check out the conversation there too. By the way, folks, the book is out today. Uh, Happy Valentine's Day. So to anyone out there trying to make a baby, go get this book, learn how to eat, get proper, get your shit straight. Okay. Hope you enjoy this episode and we will see you all on the other side. I am so happy to be diving into this conversation with you today, Bridie. Uh, we are so lucky so to be joined lucky. for a second time by our guest uh, here who's with us today, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. For folks who've been listening uh, to the podcast for a while, 
we you might recognize Lisa from our 200th episode. Oh, wow. No way. Yep. Uh, the title of that episode was The Fifth Vital Sign. Um, and uh, I'll include a link in the show notes to that episode if you want to go back and listen to it. Awesome, awesome conversation. Life-changing yeah. for me. For you, for sure. Uh, I, I mean, it all stemmed from... You You had read uh, Lisa's book on fertility uh, awareness and, and the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. And we were lucky enough to have Lisa show up on the show. And we dived into all things period tracking. Uh, and, <laughs> and for me, it was an eye-opener. I learned a lot. Um, and, uh, and again, if you didn't listen to the episode, go check it out if you want. Uh, but if you, if you don't know, Lisa Hendrickson, Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and a holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles, like Bridie here, uh, for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. She's the author of three best-selling books, The Fifth Vital Sign, which Bridie's a big fan of. Uh, the Fertility Awareness Mastering Charting Workbook. Also, also a big fan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and today we are very excited to talk to Lisa about uh, her new book that is called Real Food for Fertility, which was co-authored with Lily Nichols uh, with uh, RDN. What is RDN? Registered Dietitian. Nutritionist. Nutritionist. There we go. Ah. Sweet. I'm getting good with the uh, post-nominals. You are. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. So, so happy to have you back on the show. First of all, I just want to ask you, how are you? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so thank you for, for having me, uh, as we're recording this, we're in the final stages of getting the book out. So it's been just such an interesting process to get us here. I I mean, it took us almost three years to bring this book from concept to life. And, uh, we're just so excited to share it with the world and, I think our intention with this book was to kind of combine. It's like a lot of our fans have said, like, it's like worlds colliding. Like they didn't even, like, we didn't really talk about it publicly that we were writing this book together. Um, so Lily brings this incredible knowledge of nutrition, um, prenatal nutrition, preconception nutrition, pregnancy nutrition, um, uh, postpartum nutrition. You know, she's just incredible with her knowledge and we're, we're very well suited to write a book together because we're both really obsessed with research. Cool. So yeah. we actually had to include the the research as a, a separate PDF download because it would have added like two to 300 pages to the book. Oh my so God. Whoa. It's just out of control. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the not to scare anyone away because uh, <laughs> I think what we're both known for is breaking down really complex Ooh. topics into a more, you know, manageable um, a book. So it's, it has the knowledge and information there that I think we need. And as women, I think we deserve to have mm-hmm. somebody provide us with actual information as opposed to just talking down to us and not really providing us with a, a complete picture, um, but also in a, in a approachable way. So that was yeah. our, our goal and intention. I love it. I mean, and, and thank God for, for people like you, uh, because I'll say, I'll say this, like, in in the course of starting this podcast and uh, and Sick Boy, you know the other podcast that we record here, um, reading research papers has become a somewhat like regular occurrence. And holy cow, uh, that is a skill to be able to read a research paper and and be able to retain anything. Uh, and uh, sorry, I'm speaking as a theater school dropout. Uh, so, so, you know, thank, thank God for ChatGPT, which has been a great source for me to take, uh, information from a research paper and go, can you explain this to me? Like I'm 10, uh, but to have people 
like you, you know, people who are able to, p- people who are just great science communicators. I mean, it's such a like, it's such a valued, um, a, a valued thing, especially today, because I feel like we're, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's a, maybe it is a echo chamber type thing, but I feel like, especially in the past couple of years, maybe like, maybe, maybe due to COVID, I don't really know. I feel like there's been this massive influx in people expressing a really sincere interest in science from a like like a a, a sort of like optimization standpoint it's like you yeah. know you got the andrew huberman's and the and like these people out there that are that are trying to explain all of these complex mechanisms within the body but explain it in a way that's digestible and also it's it's meant to ensure that you can live the best way that you can right and uh and I'm I'm excited to talk today about this particular subject which is you know pertains to giving birth and and menstrual cycles and and all that I guess before we get into before we get into the the weeds there uh just something that came up in that first thing that you mentioned and I know that this is probably more on Lily's side uh but through the work that you've done with Lily and through obviously writing this book together can you give me a little bit of a sense of like, like how does, how does nutrition play a role in fertility? Like what are the things that kind of jumped out to you that perhaps you see that not a lot of people are kind of aware of, or, you know, how your nutrition kind of has, has an effect on that side of, of, uh, of life? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, definitely have Lily on to have mm-hmm. her like go into the weeds with you. But I think even just at a basic standpoint, understanding the, the, the difference between macronutrients and micronutrients. So, you know, macronutrients are our protein, our fat, our carbohydrates. And even just at a basic level, if we're not getting enough to eat, and if our macronutrient ratio is off, we're not um, setting ourselves up to have optimal hormone production. So what I see a lot when I'm working with women with the menstrual cycle, because I mean, I love my work. I am absolutely fascinated and love nerding out about the menstrual cycle because it is a real time measure of of what's happening in a woman's body. You know, Um, that's why I refer to it as the fifth vital sign, because really it, 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 it's always responding to what we're doing. So, for example, one of the very common things that I've seen in the past several years working with clients is that, you know, a lot of let's say just when men work out you know, and they're trying to do something, they're usually trying to build muscle. You know Mm. what I mean? But when women work out, we're usually trying to slim down. Mm. So it doesn't occur to women, generally speaking, that when you start a new workout routine, that you might need to increase what you're eating. Mm. So we see like when I'm looking at the menstrual cycle, it's not uncommon in certain situations when women are inadvertently under eating, they don't necessarily intend to, they're not necessarily trying to um, on purpose we might see signs of hormonal imbalances or low hormones. So it's not uncommon for me to see um, reduced cervical mucus production or to see a short luteal phase. So I'm throwing terms out here, but when we're looking at the menstrual cycle, we can look at the overall length. We can divide the menstrual cycle in half to what happens before ovulation and after. And in a healthy cycle, we would expect it to fall somewhere between 24 to 35 days And the second half of the cycle after ovulation, we call that the luteal phase or the post-ovulatory phase. We would expect to see that be about 12 to 14 days. 
So when I'm mentioning a short luteal phase, it's not uncommon for me to see something like like that, where maybe the luteal phase is only eight days or nine days, or maybe we're seeing uh, a lot of PMS, or maybe we're seeing some spotting before the period, which is quite common, but is a sign of low hormone production. And then when we do the full, you know, intake, we go into all the information and ask what they're eating, food diary, the whole thing, even ask them to track the macros for a couple of days to get a sense of how much protein we're getting, that kind of thing. Um, it's not uncommon for me to see women under eating, especially mm. under eating protein. So yeah. from that, you know, to answer your question, we can look at the macronutrients. <laughs> we can look at if you're getting enough to eat, we can look at the ratio itself because we know that in order for you to have optimal hormone production, we really do need to get enough good quality protein. We can't, um, we don't want to under eat fat because that forms the basis of our hormone production. And then for carbohydrates, we want to choose good quality carbohydrates. We want to have those in balance so that we can maintain balanced blood sugar. And then we can look at the micronutrients mm. because then all of the different functions of the body, especially when we're trying to build a baby, there's so many nutrients that we require for so many different functions. And so this is one of the just brilliant things about working with Lily um, for her to, you know, essentially when you're reading the book, the first five chapters are really heavy on nutrition. And she goes into the specifics, the specific nutrients in great detail with the evidence because it really drives at home how important it is for us to cover both bases, for us to make sure we're getting sufficient amount to eat in good proportions but to also make sure we're prioritizing the foods that are highest in the micronutrients that we need to build babies. I mean, the, the micronutrients that people are most familiar with hearing would be folate. But, mm -hmm. you know, we can also talk about iron. We can talk about choline. We can talk mm -hmm. about iodine. We can talk about, you know, a variety. I could just, you know, go on. Um, so what's, what's really, I think, um, in terms of our, our goal and even myself as both a practitioner but also as a mother – so I have three children. I have um, an 11-year-old, an 8-year-old, and I have an 18-month-old. Wow. <laughs> so, That's new since we talked last. <laughs> since we talked last. I had a baby. Um, the timing might have been somewhat related to COVID because I remember I, I would ask my husband every now and then, like, on a scale of 0 to 10, because I do this exercise with my clients, like, you know, how, how and he was at a 2 for, like, the longest time. And somewhere in the middle of COVID, he was, like, 8. I was, like, 8. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's go time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all this is to say that uh, as, a, as a practitioner, I can really appreciate how important this is. But as a mother, having gone through pregnancy and postpartum now three times, it is just so important for you to focus on nutrition for the baby's sake. Yes. Mm. But for your sake, because once you have the baby, you have all these responsibilities you know, babies are require so much of your time and energy. And if you are not nourished, um, then it's it's so much harder for you to be there for your baby. But it's also, you know, most of my clients, when they have a baby, they often want more than one. So we right. we go uh, we're often going into pregnancy undernourished. And then you, there's no scenario where you go through pregnancy and lactation and come out on the other end with more nutrients than you did going in. Um, I've never really worked with postpartum clients that didn't have mul multiple deficiencies because I mean, what could be more nutrient intensive than building a human? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so all of these things are taken into consideration. Like it's, it's, I think it's for us, it's, it's definitely a passion project because as mothers as well, we can see how crucial this is. It's mm. hard. Even when you're nourished, it can be hard to be a mom. So imagine how hard it can be when you're not. 
I, I mean, I love I the, the thing that makes me think about is is like, you know, being educated on this sort of thing uh, almost acts as a a guide for not just, you know, so, so say, say, for example, like I, I, I've, I never want, I never thought I'd ever even consider the idea of having a child, uh, for, for pretty much my entire adult life up to the age of, uh, up to the age of six months ago. (laughs) And, um, and all of a sudden I've had this sort of like this very, very strong, very intense shift. And this all stems from the fact that I live with cystic fibrosis. So like previously it was like, oh, I don't want to bring a kid into the world because I don't want to die on some kid and just leave them, you know, fatherless. Um, but now there's this new medication that I was on and it's, you know, it, it, my life expectancy is kind of like extended by, by a means that I, I can't even comprehend right now. And so all of a sudden there's like these things coming up where I'm going, oh, okay, kids, like maybe that's a thing. Also, my colleague just had, you know, just had a child through IVF and, and their, their second child's on the way. And so, like, I'm starting to get the baby fever thing from being an uncle to, you know, kids that aren't just my sister's kids. And, um, but the, where I'm going with this is, you know, someone like myself or my partner who are entering that stage of going, okay, maybe this is something we want to do, um, but we want to ensure that we're going to do it the best way that we can. And so there's all the fertility books out there. There's all the baby books out there. And, uh, this one seems really, really unique and really, really, you know, valuable because not only does it prepare you for what's to come and, and setting you up for success from a, from like a biological and like, like health standpoint. So like, you know, put, put the, like, how do I not fuck up my kids aside and just, and, and focus on the, how do I get my body right? and my health right so that I can do this and make sure that it, you know, it happens with the least amount of complications. Well, once that knowledge is in you and say baby one is all you want and you don't want number two going forward, you now have this foundation of, Oh, you know what? I also kind of understand uh, a little bit more about my overall well being. Mm. you know, where, whether it pertains to nutrition or it pertains to my lifestyle which, uh, which is really just like an, again, coming back to that sort of like, you know, how to optimize your health. Uh, and this, this, I feel like it's this thing that's kind of like popping off right now. And, and I think it's amazing. I think that's great. And it's so nice to hear that there, there's sort of a, a standpoint here that's coming from the fertility aspect because, um, because who wouldn't want to, you know, go into that experience without the most amount of quality knowledge possible. So, yeah. Yeah, and I I feel like if I correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was looking um at the email that came in about this episode today, it it's not just in case anyone's listening and who is like still on the other side of things who's not necessarily interested in fertility. This is relevant to anyone with a menstrual cycle. Right. And mm-hmm. That is something like I was just getting my hair done and I was just having this conversation with my hairdresser <laughs> about how like you know, also like receiving advice or, um, you know, from a healthcare professional and needing to take a certain amount of it with a grain of salt because the person who's delivering it to you is not, doesn't live in a female body. And so there's, and, and, and this was the thing that like, just, oh, really makes me grind my teeth when I think back to our first conversation about how, you know, like, wait a minute, 
wait a minute, this is happening to 50% of the population. We've never been empowered with the information about fertility awareness method as a means of birth control. So we take all of this stuff that is doing all kinds of other stuff to our body that, that is unintentional. And it's, it's, it feels like it's because the, that the, the higher ups think we can't be trusted with the information mm. to like track our cycles and be, you know, responsible with that information and, and, and like apply it in an effective way. So, so I'm, I'm dying to hear just, you know, whether or not we're thinking about having a baby and building a baby, like what do we think about through the, the, the pre-ovulatory and post-ovulatory phase that I assume eventually also leads to a habitable environment for a baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I'm with you on so much. There's so much to unpack there, but to, to address that one thing that came to mind is that in, in my work, I do obviously work with uh, women who are trying to conceive or who have been trying for a while and have been having some difficulties but I also work with women who are wanting to avoid pregnancy without hormones. Right. So I do these programs where I, I, I do, you know, um, I do, I don't separate them anymore, but I'll do group programs. And I often have quite a few women in the group who are not trying to get pregnant either at all. <laughs> um, or they just maybe not within a year or two or five or whatever. And so interestingly, what I found was that when I was encouraging them to, uh, in ways to support healthy cycling and, and hormone balancing and, and some of the, the challenges that they're having with their cycles, whether it's they feel, you know, hormone imbalance stuff or PMS or cycle irregularities or like I had mentioned before, you know, premenstrual spotting or just a variety of things that can happen in the cycle. What I found was that I was referring them to Lily's book, Real Food for Pregnancy. Okay. And I was kind of saying like, well, you know, I know you're not trying to get pregnant, but <laughs> this is the nutritional foundation that is going to help you to achieve a healthy cycle. And so this book is so, you know, like Lily and I were working on this book for quite some time. And so for a long time, I was saying, you know, I had a client today who I needed to give the, like this book to that we're working on, because whether or not you're trying to have a baby right now, uh, these are the steps that will help you to have a healthy cycle. And what's interesting about it is that when you do kind of optimize your fertility, there is this connection between fertility and health. So when you're a cycle nerd like myself um, and you're charting your cycle and paying attention, like you said, to the different phases of the menstrual cycle, you and, and you start to acquaint yourself with what is normal in the menstrual cycle. Then after several cycles of charting, you can really start to see the connection between your cycles and health. So I had mentioned that a healthy cycle falls somewhere bef- between 24 to 35 days. Um, in a healthy cycle, we would expect you to ovulate. And so in order for the cycle to fall into that range, we would expect that ovulation to happen somewhere between dates 10 and let's say 22. We would expect to have <clears throat> like your period, the first day of your period is the first day of your cycle. We would expect the period to have a beginning, a middle and an end, and then for it to be over, for it to last an average of, of about five days. Although it's extremely common for women to have pain with the menstruation, um, you know, ideally, we would see very little pain, um, if any, in a healthy cycle. And, you know, when we go through the cycle, we go through the different phases of the cycle, we can really identify a lot of potential issues that are happening. So, you know, obviously, we 
titled the book Real Food for Fertility. But ironically, you can think about it that fertility is a sign of health. And, and something else that you had mentioned about the birth control pill, I think you'd mentioned about the birth yeah. control pill and, um, and just like how we're not really given any information around it. And so I would like to live in a world where we have choices, like real ones. So not just the choice to avoid pregnancy, because that's heavily emphasized. So we're all scared to death about getting pregnant on any day of the cycle because we're not given the information that we need to understand how our cycles work and that we're not fertile every day. But we're also not given any information about how our fertility changes over time. Right. So I've had so many conversations with women in their late, you know, mid to late 30s who are just as terrified of getting pregnant as they would have been at 21. Right. And that the conversation needs to change. So there's a lot of things we address in the book, which one of them is, you know, I'm of the opinion. So this is just my opinion. Grain of salt. I'm of the opinion that if we want kids someday, then when we hit 30, we should start thinking about our choice of birth control. Just mm-hmm. start thinking about it. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to do. But the one thing we should know with hormonal methods is that there is this temporary period of subfertility when we come off of them. We know that the birth control pill, for example, it suppresses a woman's ovarian reserve parameters. And there's a number of studies on oh, this wow. where what, when you're actively on it, the ovarian volume is reduced by 50%. That's another way of saying it shrinks the ovaries. Okay. Um, the, the main things that they're testing when they're looking at ovarian reserve parameters include anti-malarian hormone, AMH, um, antral follicle count, and then the ovarian volume and a variety of other things. And so, I mean, if you think about how the pill works, it suppresses ovulation. So obviously the, like it, it, it when you actually think about it, like obviously it's going to have a negative effect on the ovaries t- temporarily mm-hmm. because it's literally shutting them down. So yeah, like that's what it's doing. And, and that's what makes it an effective birth control method. So we, are we criticizing that or for, are we wanting birth control? Right. But if we're aware that it has this effect, what happens is um, there was an interesting study that um, it, it's a fertility preservation study. So basically when women are wanting to freeze their eggs, yeah. so they had it where you either like you come off the birth control and then they try to extract the eggs right away, or they would have them wait a certain number of months to see if it made a difference. What they found was that if they waited six to seven months before they did the extraction, they would get a whole lot more eggs because it takes time for the ovaries to bounce back and all of that. This does not mean that a person can't come off the pill and get pregnant right away because we know that that can happen. We know some women even get pregnant while they're still on the pill. But if we're looking at um, like what you were saying earlier about planning, we want to plan ahead. We want to set ourselves up for success. We want to make it so we have the best chance of having this happen when we want it and, and potentially easily and to have a healthy baby, right? We want to have all the things. And so it's interesting because in that particular study, the researchers, they concluded that it's a good idea if someone wants to preserve their eggs and have them extracted to consider coming off the pill, you know, six to seven months ahead of time. But then that doesn't cross over into our advice for women on birth control, right? We're not really being given that same information. Women are not provided any direction they're just told to just whenever they're ready to start a, a family just to come off the pill right away so that's where we're stepping in looking at what the research is saying and we're saying look like we're recommending for you to actually have a plan here so if you're on birth control we think that you should consider coming off of it for several months before you're actively trying to conceive mm. and so if you were put on the pill because you just needed birth control and you never really had any cycle issues 
then we're (laughs) recommending a minimum of about six to 12 months. Just to give your ovaries time to recover, and also the pill is known to deplete a number of nutrients, particularly the ones that we need to make babies, (laughs) like folate and other B vitamins and things. So give yourself an opportunity to let your hormones normalize post-pill and also focus on your nutrition um, so that when you're going into, you know, when you're trying to conceive that you're giving yourself the best chance. But if you had cycle issues, like if you were put on the pill because you never knew when your next period was coming or you had irregular cycles or you had like extreme pain and nothing helped and et cetera, et cetera, then you're potentially at a greater risk for having an issue because the pill just masks the problem. If you had irregular cycles and you went on the pill, don't think that that meant that your cycles are regular now because when you're on the pill, you don't really have cycles. What you're experiencing are those withdrawal bleeds. So for a woman who had that history she's at a greater risk of coming off and potentially having a delay to when she starts ovulating again. Because whatever the issue was, didn't go away. Like it's still there. It wasn't addressed. And so it's like having an insurance policy. You know, you want to, you don't want to assume that you're going to have problems, but this is the information women and couples need when they're Mm. planning ahead for having a baby. And no one is telling them that no one is Mm. giving them the heads up that if you fall into this category, it could take you a little longer So then back to that comment I made about like when we hit 30, I think that we should start thinking about a different birth control method. We should start looking into non-hormonal options, just seeing if it might be a possibility for us to switch it up and try to prevent pregnancy in a different way. Because if it's going to take us a little bit of time for our cycles to normalize, then we want to have that time built in, you know, because when you come when you stop using condoms, your body doesn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're not using a hormonal method, you can track your cycles and you can actually see if they're falling into normal parameters or not. And if you're if you give yourself that buffer time, then you would have a little bit of time to make some changes to do what you need to do to improve that before you're actively trying. And that's kind mm-hmm. of our vision, right, with what we're trying to do with this book. Uh, I have so many questions. Um, and uh, but before before I get into those, like I, I'm really curious to kind of to kind of dive into, you know, like egg quality and sperm quality and and those types of things. But before that, I do have a couple of potentially dumb questions um, that that will just help me kind of like put some terms and stuff into context for myself. Okay, so the first one, um, I know that it, the fifth vital sign, you know, the book that we had you on the podcast um, uh, back in episode two hundred was was all about like tracking your menstrual cycle. Um, just, just curious, uh, and, and forgive me if this is just like an absolute silly question. There's no stupid questions. (laughs) Okay. Is there, is, what is the difference if, if any, uh, between fertility awareness and, and tracking your menstrual cycle? Are those, are those two the same thing or, or are we looking at two kind of separate things there? Well, so when I think of the term fertility awareness in a general sense, I mean, It could, as a general concept, fertility awareness can be just understanding what's happening in your cycle. So it doesn't necessarily, like if we're using it just as a general term, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're actively tracking. Um, There's another term, body literacy, that I also use a lot. So if we think about that kind of concept, like fertility awareness kind of being like body literacy, understanding how the cycle works understanding even just about cervical fluid. So you right. produce this clear, stretchy stuff or lotiony stuff. 
several days before ovulation. And that's your fertile window because the sperm can survive in that for up to five days. Understanding that, you know, um, that you can't get pregnant after you've confirmed ovulation, that there's a period of time in the cycle that's fertile and that's not. And even just understanding that when you can start to identify ovulation, the second half of the cycle is relatively stable. And so you can use that to predict your period. So having a general understanding of how your cycle works, I think we could like that, that in of itself is a fertility awareness in more of a general sense. Right. And then cycle charting takes it to another level when you're actually using a fertility awareness based method right. where you're actually okay. using it, following a specific way of charting and, and writing th- specific things down like that. That's just going into the rabbit hole. Turn me on podcast. We'll be back after this short break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Okay, got it. Okay, so so fertility awareness, even you know, even tracking your menstrual cycle, all of those things. Obviously, that body literacy is going to help improve your chances of conceiving if that's something that you're looking to do. Okay, got it. Second one, and this is based off something you said earlier. Um, this idea of like coming off birth control and giving it a window before making that attempt for um, for for conceiving is you know is there because of the way that birth control has an effect on the ovaries and, and on the entirely, you know, the reproductive system. If someone comes off birth control and say, they're like, all right, I'm going to come off birth control and we're going to try to start having that baby like tomorrow. Um, is that, does that, are there chances of like, I, I don't know how to word this. I, I know this isn't the, the way that I want to say it, but I'll just say it because it's the only way that's coming up in my mind. But like, are there hazards there? Like if, if that's, if that's the choice that you're making to just go, throw the birth control in the garbage and let's start trying to make a baby tomorrow. Well, so I don't know that I would say there's a hazard. Um, I think that the one way to look at it is, are we looking at what's optimal or not? So, I mean, at the one, you know, at the end of the day, your, your body will conceive when it can. And so some people are able to like, will successfully conceive in a situation like that for sure. Um, 
and some people might take a little bit longer. So let me share some data because I think the data can provide us with a little bit of context. Sure. So there's a study that we looked at and they essentially, it, it was really interesting because they broke down several different birth control methods and they also broke it down by month. And so they had couples who had been using condoms. They had couples who had been using the combined, when I say combined oral contraceptive, it's the one that has both the synthetic estrogen and progestins. They had uh, couples using the ID and the shot and a few other things. And so they compared them side by side and they basically looked at the time to pregnancy. So the couples who were using condoms, so non-hormonal methods, on average, it took four months from when they stopped using the condoms to conceive. And four months is actually kind of the average because they say the average healthy couple has about a 25% chance per cycle for conception. And then for the combined oral contraceptive, uh, the, the, the users that came off of that, it took an average of eight months to conceive. And so that is interesting because that means it, it took an average of twice as long. And so obviously if that's an average, some people would have conceived right away and some people took maybe even a year. And so this is kind of the point. So I wouldn't go so far as to be like, it's a hazard, but I, what we are talking about here is setting yourself up for success and, and optimizing it. It's like, no, how do I say it? It's like, we want not just to get pregnant. If we really think about it, we want to have a healthy child. You know, we want to have our, we want ourselves also to be healthy as parents. So when we're looking at, um, because I'm sure that there are people listening who are like, yeah, well, I came off the pill and I got pregnant right away and it's completely fine. And that is like, that is a lot of women's experience. That is Mm -hmm. great. The hard thing is that I have been working with this population for a long time. A lot of women are put on the pill because they have period issues. Yeah, I've worked with women who literally like didn't get their period and they were put on the pill. They just stopped getting it regularly and they come off the pill and they don't have their first period for four months. They don't even have their period for four months after Ooh. the pill. They didn't have their period for six months or eight months. One of the women I work with didn't have it for like five years after. I mean, the pill didn't cause that just to be clear. Right. She had like hypothalamic amenorrhea, right? She, you know, she didn't, she wasn't working out too much and like not eating enough, right? Like that kind of thing. But if you're on the pill and you're getting a regular bleed, like you don't necessarily have that information. So what we're talking about here is a different way of looking at it. It's a different approach and we're looking at what's optimal. So in terms of quote, like I wouldn't say, I don't know what word I would use, but maybe some considerations for coming off the pill and just, you know, not necessarily planning ahead would be that we do know that the pill depletes a number of micronutrients, including folate, Mm. including zinc, including a number of other B vitamins, particularly B12. And it changes the way you process things like vitamin A and and selenium and even CoQ10. So there's like a whole list of nutrients that are processed in in our bodies differently when we're on the pill and particular nutrients that are known to be depleted. B6 is especially interesting because it's significantly depleted and then is associated with some of the mood changes that many women experience when they're on the pill, like depression and um, anxiety and things like that. And so we know how important folate is. Women are given the advice to take it. And so in terms of what would be optimal, well, it'd be optimal to come off of it so that that nutrient, you know, the, the way that our bodies are processing nutrients is kind of back to normal. And it would be optimal to take several months to eat 
really nutrient dense foods and potentially identify some of those deficiencies and correct them so that when we're moving into pregnancy, we're setting ourselves up for success. So an analogy that I often use with clients is like the bank account analogy. So if you picture what's what you're trying to do with our approach is that you're trying to fill up that bank account with as much as many nutrients as possible going into pregnancy, because again, pregnancy is there's nothing else that's going to use more nutrients than building a human. Like there, I just can't think of anything. <laughs> I remember when I had my first son and um, I delivered him at home and we had a little birthing tub. And I remember I like picked him up out of the tub and looked at him and I thought like, where did he come from? <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> That's my first thought. So it really hit me. That was in a moment that will always stay with me that, you know, if I'm eating chips and whatever, <laughs> pizza, that's what's building the baby. Right. So I think we can maybe not to say never have a chip, but like maybe we can also add some stuff that's like way better than chips. Right. Um, but this is something to to consider. And so um, I I think I went on a bit of a tangent, but hopefully that answers. No, it's amazing. Question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I mean, I have a thousand more, but I, I want to. Uh, well, I have one. I, I think we're going to I think this will take us into egg quality. But yeah. it just occurred to me, this is the first time I've ever thought about this. But with, when we take a, a hormonal birth control pill, you said we're not actually having a we're not ovulating, right? There's no egg being released. So being born with all the eggs we'll have, does that mean, does that mean like we've got some extras like saved up when we come off the pill or, or, or does that affect egg quality so that they're not viable anymore? Or how does that work? That's such a good question. So no, spoiler alert, uh, it doesn't mean that if you're on the pill for 20 years, like you get an extra 20. And I think we kind of know that, right? Because like no one just then goes on to have their menopause at 70 (laughs) when they have uh, come off the pill. So um, what's interesting is that, yes, we're born with all the eggs that we'll ever have. And so in utero, I include the stat in the egg quality chapter that at about 20 weeks gestation, if I'm remembering correctly, we have like several million eggs. And so when we're born, we're born with anywhere from, you know, 500,000 to a million of, of these eggs. And um, then what happens over time is this process that they refer to as, you know, follicular atresia. But, you know, if you think about it, if, if you're born with like a million eggs, you don't even even if you ovulate throughout your whole reproductive life, like you don't ovulate a million times. So there is this natural process by which the eggs are kind of developing and and many of them end up being reabsorbed and things like that over time. So um, I think there's an interesting stat, like over the average of your life, you release like 500 eggs, you know, assuming that you're ovulating on a regular basis. And so what happens is towards the beginning of the reproductive life, you know, when we have our menarche, that's when we still have like a really good reserve. Um, We can get into some of those egg quality topics. I know uh, one of the topics I have been asked a lot about in the interviews that I've done so far is AMH levels because anyone who works with women who have fertility challenges, you know, that's one of the things that they're testing, one of the ovarian reserve markers. And often if a woman's AMH levels are low, they're being told that they won't be able to have kids or they're being told that they're going to go into menopause. And so what's interesting is at the beginning of our reproductive life, you know, every menstrual cycle, several follicles kind of develop together toward the beginning of the cycle in a little follicle pool. And then one is chosen for ovulation. And so when we're younger, that kind of follicle pool, there's more in it. So 
we have a higher antral follicle count. That's if they were literally to look at that time of the cycle and see how many little follicles are growing. And AMH is put out by those little follicles. So then the more that we have in the pool, the higher the AMH levels are going to be. So at the beginning of the reproductive life, you know, we have a bigger pool. And this is their way of indirectly measuring how many eggs that we have left. So when they look at the AMH levels, it's kind of like a proxy for uh. because they're never going to go into your ovary and like cut it open and cut like count. Right. So men can give us a, a sperm sample, but women can't give like an egg sample. So a, any type of measure of our reserve is always done indirectly. And so when so if you think about that, then again, at, at the beginning of the reproductive life, that would be when the, the AMH levels are the highest, the enteral follicle count is the largest. And then gradually over time, there's this interesting linear relationship. I mean, we can go into it a little bit further, but but yes, this to answer your question, you know, regardless of whether you're on the pill or not, you know, those numbers change over time. And when they're looking at something like the AMH values, they're going to look at a different range. So a, a 20 year old is going to have a different range of what would be normal compared to a 40 year old because we're going to have like because it changes over time based on this kind of decreasing, slowly decreasing reserve. And um, so an interesting fact is that then when you hit menopause, so menopause would be the word for your last period, and it's usually defined after you've gone a year without having a period, they say at menopause you have about a thousand eggs left. So you go from having so many at birth to like a thousand at the end. Um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll pause there because I could go on about that topic, but. Um, really interesting that. stuff. Yeah. And yeah, that was exactly where I, I was, you know, hoping to go there. Um, and I just learned something. I didn't realize that uh, every time someone has their period that they are shedding one egg. Well, one several egg in a oh, way. Oh, is it several? Okay. Okay. Because you have the pool that develops. So you have right. this little pool of all these little follicles and they're all kicking out a little bit of estrogen. But eventually one is chosen. It's called the dominant follicle. Sure. Follicle. Oh, okay. And then okay. that one. And then the rest of them just are kind of reabsorbed. Oh, wow. Wow. That's yeah. so interesting. Man, we are such interesting machines, <laughs> right? Fascinating. Yeah. Like, like, it's wild. Well, it makes me think like the, this whole interesting thing too about this topic is like we've been having, we haven't had this book before, and but we've been having periods and pregnancies for so long. And there's so much of this. It's just in... Ha like it's just innate and mm. happening in our bodies. And of course our, our food supply has changed so much and our access to nutrition has changed dramatically. And so this is why this book is so like important and relevant mm. um, for us right now. But like just the hormones yeah, and like, yeah. just, it's like a Dr. Seuss yeah. creation in there. I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I'd love to talk about, uh, talk about sperm and, you know, so like, I had mentioned earlier that my 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 buddy Taylor had um, they went through IVF and uh, prior to making the decision to do IVF they were trying the the natural way and uh, and I was talking to him about you know his appointment to go in and like take a sperm sample and um and yeah I'm I guess like I w I'm I'm kind of curious about about that process and like the the uh, the sort of like sperm guidelines, uh, you know, what, what is that? How is that developed? And what can we tell from like, you know, a, like a sperm sample? Um, what can we tell about how that might affect someone's chances for, for conceiving? 
Mm-hmm. It's it's such an interesting topic. And when I was writing that chapter of of the book, so there's a giant sperm chapter um, in the book, and I put the sperm chapter before the egg quality chapter because I'm putting the men on blast because. Um, <laughs> Well, because I there's a couple of things I always like to say to clients, which is there's no man alive that's so healthy he can't benefit from improving his diet or taking like a, a focused vitamin or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, because often with fertility, as you know, you know, we are assuming it's the woman. Um, that's just how it is, because we have the visual evidence of this pregnancy. When we look at the stats, male fertility is so male infertility is the sole cause of infertility about 20 mm-hmm. to 30 percent of the time. And it contributes 50% of the time. That's half. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we need to be talking about the men. Um, so it's really interesting, I think, how they came up with the um, the guidelines. So currently, when a man's sperm is tested, they're comparing it to the guidelines that were set out by the World Health Organization in 2010. So they have a whole document. It's accessible online. You can find it. And it's like a really long document. But within there, that's uh, it has a lot of instructions for practitioners for how to you know measure the sperm and things like that but this is where those guidelines come from and interestingly there was a study where they developed this information and so they took uh almost 2000 men or more than more than 2000 men um couples but it's like how do you say it do you say couples or do you say men but either way sure. there were like over 2000 um couples and they looked at the time to pregnancy and so they then sectioned off the men couples who conceived within one year. So they had a pool, you know, it's almost 2000 men who were successfully able to conceive like their, their, the couples were successfully able to conceive in a year. And then they broke off the results. Like they tested all their sperm and broke off those results into centiles, you know, back to math class. And so the world health organization guidelines are based on the fifth percentile so out of all the men couples who were able to conceive successfully they looked at those sperm parameters and when you're looking at those guidelines 95 percent of the men had better guys had better sperm and that is that's like essentially where it comes from and i think it's it's always i find it important to always just give a little context for population parameters and even lab values and things like that because whether we're looking at thyroid levels or a variety you know iron levels or anything like that if you're looking at the general levels on a lab result they're usually pretty broad or pretty low and I think from their perspective on a population level they don't want to over diagnose people so I think they might be motivated in a different way when they're coming up with these guidelines mm. because they they don't want to put the guidelines so high that ev- everyone has a m- medical problem. Mm. But I think the the takeaway, the important thing to know is that these guidelines don't represent what would be optimal for conception. Mm. They represent this very low bar where if your partner falls under those levels, it might even be challenging to conceive through artificial means. You know, it's like if you're below this, it might even be a challenge for artificial reproductive technology. So uh, when we were, you know, when I was looking at writing this section, then we wanted to ask the question of, well, what is optimal? Have there been any studies that look into what would potentially be optimal, not just the low bar that they're looking at through the WHO 2010 guidelines? 
And so um, to put it into perspective, um, the average man in the 1940s, and you, you know, I get this information by looking at old studies. It's actually really interesting to look at old studies. But the average man in the 1940s had a sperm concentration. There was a, a study where the average concentration was about 113 million sperm per milliliter in the 40s. The average man today probably has something like 50 million sperm per milliliter. Oh, There's wow. a number of studies who've looked at this decline over time, and it's been in the news. People talk about it, but there's a significant decline that's happened over time. So I always like to say it's not like it's just your partner, like there's something going on here because yeah. all of these studies have shown this consistent decline. So 1940s, 113 million, average man today, 50 million. Now, according to the World Health Organization, if your partner has sperm parameters, the concentration above 15.15 million per milliliter, he's told he's perfectly fine. And <sighs> the motility is 40%. And if you think about what does motility mean? Motility means the sperm is moving. That means mm. 60% are not. And then 4% more normal morphology. So morphology is, and in the book I have, I, we included like a, a depiction of a normal sperm versus some of the abnormal ones that show like, cause in the, in the world health organization document, they dye the sperm, look at it under a microscope and take the picture. So you can actually visually see, this is something I showed a clients in, in <laughs> sessions, but you can actually visually see like what the sperm looks like when it's normal versus abnormal. So we included like a depiction of that because the depiction is really helpful to actually see the visual. But so when you think of a sperm, you think of like a round head and a tail, right? Yeah. So like a tadpole. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So 4% look like that. And then 90 or if you were to take out of 100 sperm, four look like that. And 96 have like a squashed head or a messed up head or no head or whatever. That's Taylor. Taylor. And <laughs> you have the flathead sperms. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And four, so. Can you say that again? 4%? Yeah. So what are, the World Health uh, Organization says is normal is 15 million per milliliter concentration. Wow. 40% motility and 4% normal morphology. And so what happens, at least what's happened with me when I'm working with women and we're having these conversations is, okay, so have you had the semen analysis? Yeah, yeah, I was told he was fine. <laughs> fine. Yeah, right. right. Always fine. Right. Yeah. And so then I say, okay, well, let's oh. look at it together. So no, no one has ever explained this to them. Like what I just said, no one yeah. has explained this to them. Right. So then when we look at the parameters and actually see where they fall, the other thing is, Statistically speaking, if you have a couple that has been trying to have have a baby for a year or more, from a statistical standpoint, he's less likely to have optimal numbers. I mean, just it's just math. Yeah. You know, because when you have if you have a group of men, when you look at like you could tell there was a lot of research, like a lot of reading of studies. Right. When you're looking at studies where they're looking at men who've been like the couples have been trying to conceive for two years or more statistically the parameters are less in those men you know mm. like the higher the sperm parameters the more quickly you're probably going to conceive you know yeah. just statistically speaking so all of this i mean yeah but but to kind of finish my thought here there was a study and a, a different study that that looked at at what point does the sperm parameter start to hinder a couple's chances of conceiving right so they were asking a, a different question and what they found was that they identified optimal parameters to be 48 million sperm per milliliter. They identified optimal motility to be 63% and optimal 
um, morphology to be 12% or higher. So World Health Organization has the lower numbers. These were the, the, you know, the optimal numbers. And what you have in the middle is kind of like a gray area of subfertility. So when you're dealing with fertility challenges, if you're told that everything's fine, but no one has explained to you how they came up with those numbers and what they mean for natural conception and how they are not optimal for natural conception, then you have all these couples who think that the man is totally good to go, Mm -hmm. but no one has really explained that, no, 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 he's very potentially in that subfertile range. And it doesn't mean the conception isn't possible. This is really important because they're not going to define a male as infertile unless he's what they call azoospermic, unless Mm -hmm. there's like no sperm, zero. Because even with low numbers, it's still possible for a conception to happen. But again, it's more likely that it's going to take longer. It's going to be more challenging, you know. When you have issues with sperm or a high degree of sperm DNA damage, when they're actually looking at the integrity of the sperm DNA, it can lead to a higher risk of miscarriage, poor pregnancy outcomes. So this is huge. It's huge. And the reason that this came on my radar and why I like go on about it so much is because, I mean, I learned fertility awareness when I was really young. I was like 19 or something, 18 or 19. It was my first year of university. And so I was using the method for avoiding pregnancy and that means that I was avoiding sperm like the plague, like to make a joke about it, it's like, oh, no, no, you stay on that side of the room. I don't want your sperm anywhere near me. Right. Mm-hmm. When I'm in my window. So then I'm working with couples and they're having sex at the time, the right time, cycle after cycle and nothing's happening, nothing. So I had to start wondering, well, what is going on? And as right. soon as you look into the sperm issue, you see, OK, well, wait a minute. There's this whole conversation here about the sperm that none of these people are talking about. Fascinating. Yeah, they're I, getting told your sperm is good or it's not good. Right. But then the bar is so low yeah. for what's considered quotes good. I'm not gonna yeah. good and bad. Thing. Well, and the solution yeah. for male infertility, in case you didn't know, is IVF. Right. So right. that's that's all that they have. Which so, explains so much because like so you know, I just yelled at Taylor and said, You have the flathead sperm. <laughs> um and I know this because that is the reason why him and his partner went through IVF. But also, I'm learning that uh, because I was quite shocked to realize a couple of months ago when Taylor informed me that his partner was pregnant again Without and IVF. they didn't do IVF. And I was like, what? I thought you were I thought you were infertile. You know, like I thought you were the, the guy with the with the hammerhead sperm that could never, <laughs> never naturally conceive. But this this all makes so much more sense now. I, I, I guess like the, the one thing that I that I'm. That comes up for me. And, and I'm, I'm like, I, I say this in jest, but also kind of serious. Um, the whole time you were talking there, I couldn't help but just continuously say in my head, like, uh, maybe you shouldn't have your laptop on your lap. Um, yeah, is there, it's yeah. in the book. Okay. Okay. All right. Oh, fuck. Oh. <laughs> Uh, Electromagnetic radiation is bad uh, for sperm. You know what's yes, funny? So was, I have yeah, two yeah, sons, yeah. right? And when they're like wanting to do the the laptop, like if we're on a plane or something, I'm always like, hey, don't, you know, blast your ball. Like, <laughs> I'm moving this. I gotta get a do you want to have kids someday? Yeah, I got to get a table or something for this thing. <laughs> okay. So to that point, what um, I, I, I 
I'm I'm a bit sad because I was I was I was expecting you to go. Oh no, that's a myth. Um, uh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, got so, dead on that one. <laughs> so okay, uh, big life changes coming up. Uh, no more laptop on the lap, and no uh, cell phone in the pocket. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I you know what? Even in your back pocket, though. I mean, why risk it? Sure, it it right. just depends yeah. Yeah. on. It's still close enough to my junk. I, I get it. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, then to that point, what are some what are some other factors that and let's let's go both like eggs and sperm so like what are some factors that like common factors that have an effect on sperm quality or egg quality um i mean there's quite a few i would say in general not to be a debbie downer um aging does have a, an effect for both yeah. men and women so that's something to be aware of uh, it's it's actually really interesting because um, a woman's egg has somewhat of a capacity to repair some of the DNA damage in the sperm. And so there are studies where oh. you have younger women with older men and they have a greater capacity because the younger eggs have a greater capacity for repairing. Whereas, you know, the older women with the older men may have less of a repair capacity. So, um, So this isn't to say that it's just to say that as you get a little bit older, you do want to start focusing a little bit more on egg and sperm quality, increasing, improving your diet. And, you know, we talk about a variety of supplements that support mitochondrial health and things like that. So um, one thing about the egg is that there is more mitochondria in the egg than any other cell in the body. The egg cell is the largest cell in the body. It's a cell that is vis like you can see it with your naked eye. It's the size of a period. And so um, the egg cell is just so, so fascinating in that respect. Do you remember, <laughs> if it, hopefully it wasn't just me, in like biology class or whatever in school and they would show you the picture of this, like the cell. Mm -hmm. And you know how like, if, okay, it, hopefully it wasn't just my textbook. So you know how they had like the picture of the cell and there was like one mitochondria in it or like maybe It's two? the powerhouse of the cell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there was like one in there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Guess how many mitochondria are in an egg cell? I don't know. I'm going to guess more than one. <laughs> 100 to 600,000. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, Can't a, do that's, it a, that's a very different picture. It's teamwork. Yeah. yeah it, that was not in the textbook. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so that gives a sense of how important it is then to support our mitochondria. Um, and the mitochondria are also essential for sperm function, for sperm motility. So, um, so in general, I mean, from, from a general standpoint, things that are common for both sperm and egg quality would be the quality of the diet. So, um, you know, in the book, we talk a lot about, like I said, the macronutrients, making sure we're getting sufficient protein, that we're not limiting fat and that we're making um, choices for the, the best quality carbohydrates, you know, in the diet, but that we're also including specific foods that are really rich in the micronutrients that we need to support both egg and sperm quality. And so that includes things like Organ meats. Organ meats have, particularly liver, are high in vitamin A, which is essential for reproduction. I mean, I could go into that in a lot of detail, but vitamin A plays such an essential role in, in reproduction that uh, when they do animal studies, and I know we're not animals, I know we're not rats, but we, I think we can still learn a lot from these animal mm -hmm. studies. So if you want to make a rat sterile, like a male rat or a female rat, you just give it a, a diet that doesn't have any vitamin A like preformed vitamin A retinol. Um, so in these rat studies, when they give them a vitamin A deficient diet, they stop making testosterone and they eventually stop making sperm. 
So um, and for the female rats, they would say that um, they have an increase in what they call fetal reabsorption. And basically they just they, they can't the babies can't like or the if, if they have just just enough, they might be born blind. So so anyway, so we want to make sure we have um, micronutrients on board. So liver is also a, a really rich source of iron, B vitamins, folate, choline. We often think of eating your leafy greens for folate, which you should also do, but have a side of liver if you're able to do that. Um, and if you don't want to eat it, you can buy desiccated liver. Um, in addition to that, I mean, we talk a lot about fish. There's a lot of nutrients in fish and seafood. So whether it's, you know, the B12 and the mm -hmm. zinc and oysters and different shellfish or the omega-3 fatty acids in, you know, the fish and the seafood itself. So there's, a, you know, and of course we need our green leafy vegetables, antioxidants. For sperm quality, you know, there's a, a lot of research on the importance of antioxidants. So we have our leafy green vegetables, our bright colored fruits, berries, really high in antioxidants. Um, there was a lot of mention of citrus foods, you know, for again, for the antioxidant um, properties. So, you know, there's there's quite a bit of just general diet for sperm specifically. There's a couple things to be aware of. So I think one thing that I think we can kind of people might think, oh, it's just a myth, like you were saying about the mm -hmm, laptop mm -hmm, thing, mm -hmm. which is the, the the heat factor. Right. So if men are wearing really tight underwear or they have a job where they're always sitting and the testicles are always hot. So the testicles hang out of the body for a reason. The right. scrotum, um, you know, which holds the testicles is actually like a temperature regulation device. <laughs> and so when the spurt, when the when the testicles are too hot, they would relax to try to get away from the body and, you know, tighten up when it's too cold. Um, I just think of this Seinfeld episode, if anyone's as old as me, when they were like, does <laughs> yeah. she know about shrinkage? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a real thing. So yeah. if you hot tub a lot or sauna a lot or any of that kind of stuff, that can make a difference. Um, cigarette smoking and marijuana smoking or even the edibles like the THC consumption is really huge for sperm parameters. Um, smoking, whether it's cigarettes or marijuana, have a really negative effect on sperm DNA mm. and cause and, you know, cause a ton of oxidative stress and all of that. So there's a, a huge correlation between that. And so sometimes if I'm working with a client and the quality, let's say the morphology is like so low, um, there's usually a reason. And I often look at it um, or explain it like, you know, you have one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. So when you're like when you have these habits that we know aren't necessarily helpful, like cigarette smoking or drinking a ton of alcohol or um, eating a lot of really um you know, highly processed sugary foods, mm. you know, mm -hmm. contributing to met metabolic issues and, you know, those kinds of things put the foot on the gas, like the hot tub or even cycling is like in its own category. So exercise in general is good, like moderate, mild to moderate exercise is associated with improving sperm parameters, but like ultra marathon, like think Ironman, like the, you know, the, you know, those 24 hour races where yeah, people are yeah. like, climbing mountains and swimming through oceans and stuff so like if you're like super extra with your exercise as a man um like there is a a, a level at which it is detrimental to sperm and interestingly cycling is in its own category and i right. don't know if that's because 
I, th- I think I've thought about this quite a bit. So maybe it's to do with the fact that when a person is cycling, they often are doing it for hours, right? Yeah. Like six to eight. Like they're going, they're, where are they going? Maybe they're, they're going really to another town. Yeah. 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 Or they're going across the country. So it could be that it's just a duration issue, but it could also have something to do with the fact that it is probably warm. Yeah. 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 And you're sitting. It's yeah. a seated yeah. exercise. Yeah. Again, Taylor. Taylor uh, is a biker. dedicated big, that's cyclist. Why sperm were so so flat headed, baby. I can't Uh-oh. wait to read this book. My yeah. brain is so intrigued. Yeah, yeah. I uh, did we did we lose you? Oh no. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, I could okay. I yeah, could honestly yeah. go on about the sperm thing for another half hour, but <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I thought yeah, I'd pause. I mean, <laughs> it's like I'm I, I'm just uh, I, I'm I'm. Uh, again, just like the last time we had you on the show, like I'm, my mind's blown wide open. I mean, my my takeaways personally from the from this is, uh, cut out the nicotine, uh, um, to keep the laptop off my lap, uh, wear my cell phone on a lanyard, uh, <laughs> or just keep it in a fucking backpack and keep my balls cold. <laughs> like that's you know I think this <laughs> on is, ice yeah on ice. Um, Lisa, I mean cooling underwear. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's some of that. Uh, Can some I of mention that one more thing for sperm? Tech. Yeah, please. Because there's one other thing that is, I think it's huge and I hadn't necessarily, I wasn't as familiar with this even a few years ago. So sometimes uh, if a man is like being tested and stuff and it might show that he has low testosterone, um, there's practitioners that will then go put him on testosterone or people who are just working out and stuff and they're taking, you know, steroids Right. Or they're taking testosterone to bulk up their muscles. Yeah. 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 So when men take testosterone, it's like a birth control pill and it makes them sterile. Ah. And it can last even after they come off of it for several months or more. That's fascinating because there are a lot of young men. Yeah. Yeah. Taking on testosterone. testosterone. Exactly. And, And they don't necessarily know that it's fully like there's it's a pretty high percentage of men that it's they it makes them sterile. Wow. So this is something and I've this is something some of my practitioners have dealt with um, different clients where the partner gets a a semen analysis and it's like there's nothing. And it's like, well, why? But they're taking testosterone. So, you know, there's there's other things like so it's, you know, chapter chapter nine is the this and it's like super like. 250 citations in that chapter alone, like we went into all this depth. But the reason is because, again, this is just information that we don't have. And when you're trying to conceive naturally, that's when you need to figure out how to improve and support your partner's natural sperm production. And even something like the testosterone thing, there's people who are listening right now that have never heard this in their lives, whose partner may actually be taking tea and they may have absolutely no idea that it could be making them sterile. A hundred percent. And, and I feel like my, one of my takeaways, at least for today, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it does sound like even despite all of these things that can have a potentially negative impact on our ability to conceive, it sounds like with certain steps, these things can be reversed in a lot of cases. Mm. They don't, we, we don't, we're not stuck necessarily or at least it, it may, maybe not maybe reverse isn't the, the right word but maybe like improve right 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 um, like again improving the quality um sorry. well briefly I, I, like yeah. absolutely so you know the whole point of it is to say that you know even people who are eating relatively healthy i mean how many of the people who are eating relatively healthy are you know intentionally 
incorporating organ meats or intentionally incorporating mm. fish and seafood to make sure that that because you know for egg and sperm quality omega-3s come up a lot you know vitamin d comes up a lot there's a lot of specific things coenzyme q10 co- comes up a lot there's a, a ton of research about antioxidants and specifically you know just to throw one out there but there's a number of different antioxidants again um to support the um to prevent the sperm dna damage and the oxidation Coenzyme Q10 comes up a lot because, like I said, the egg cell has more mitochondria than anything else. Um, the sperm require the mitochondria for optimal motility. And interestingly, as far as parameter go, parameters go, total motile sperm count, so the total number of motile sperm, are is, is most highly correlated with reproductive success, which is really interesting. So supporting mitochondrial health is really crucial. So, I mean, there's foods that can naturally contain a lot of coenzyme Q10, like liver and like heart, if you're into that, right? But we, you know, there's, there's, so, so rest assured that there is a lot of very practical strategies that are evidence-based where you can see what has actually worked with people. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also there are certain conditions that may or may not be able to be helped. But even if that was the case, you want to have the information and the support so that you could identify if there was something like that that was going on, like more of a physical problem that's preventing the, you know, the sperm production or something like that. Man, I'm just, I'm blown away here. Uh, Agreed. Lisa, you, uh, your wealth of knowledge, this is, the, you know, it, the last time we had you on the show, just absolutely loved it. We were talking about it for days. Uh, the same is going to happen here. Uh, I'm probably not going to shut the fuck up about <laughs> what I learned about uh, on the today's episode for weeks. Um, I just thank you. Thank you so much for, for all the work that you do. Uh, again, folks, uh, today is Valentine's day. So first of all, first of all, happy Valentine's day. Secondly, today is the day that real food for fertility has hit the bookshelves. Um, and so get your copy now. Um, Lisa, how can people stay up to date with the work that you are doing? How can people find you? Absolutely. So you can go to realfoodforfertility.com. You can find out more about me on the about page. I've been doing my Fertility Friday podcast for almost 10 years. It's 2024 now. It's wild. How old am I? I keep asking that. (laughs) It's time reference. I mean, I was right there with you. (laughs) Right? Oh, my goodness. But um, but yes, so if if you're into podcasts and you're wanting to go down the rabbit hole with me, you can type Fertility Friday into your favorite podcast player and you'll find me. Um, you can get the first chapter of Real Food for Fertility for free at realfoodforfertility.com. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's useful for any practitioners out there who are now really interested in learning more about the menstrual cycle and using it as a vital sign. I created a really interesting resource, um, how to interpret virtually any chart that your client throws at you. So you can find that resource at fertilityfriday.com slash chart. And thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I mean, we could have continued talking for like I could keep hours. talking yeah. for hours for sure. Uh, Lisa, thank you. This has been a real treat. Thank you so much. All right, there we have it, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation that we just had. And uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you want to support the podcast further, you can do that by leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app. And uh, if you want to uh, support the podcast even further than that, 
which you can. Wow. You can You're go to so kind and thoughtful and so generous. Thoughtful. So generous. Go to patreon.com slash turn me on. Uh, to become a patron and help us uh, keep this podcast afloat. Well, if you want to reach out to us, turnmeonpodcast at gmail.com is always open for all of your messages. That's the best way to get in touch if you have a question for us, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you have a recommendation for a guest on the show, or if you just want to send us a little love note, uh, email money transfer, uh, all of that. Sex toy. <laughs> you know, we're, we're our email inbox is open to you. That is it for this week. Until next week. Why don't you go touch yourself? Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.